You know that you learn a lot about a person by traveling with them? There's something about the continuously shifting circumstances of a journey that reveals the frailties of a person. The change in schedule, in routine, in sleeping condition, and even food can wear down the patience and the perseverance of even the steadiest travel companion. My husband and I learned this lesson the hard way. It was several years into our marriage when we took our first big international trip together. Neither of us had ever been to Europe before, so we had planned this big dream vacation to France and to Italy. Our first stop was Paris, and we had jam-packed our itinerary with every single site that this city had to offer, which we now know was our first big mistake. We landed after a long overnight flight, and we hit the ground running. And after about 36 hours, we were pretty much over it. We were completely exhausted, we were overwhelmed, and we were absolutely on edge with each other and every other person in the French-speaking world. So these tensions came to a head during our visit to the Louvre Museum, and we ended up getting in this huge argument right in the middle of the Grand Salon of Napoleon III. So the fact that we were not politely escorted out of the museum by a security guard leads me to believe that we certainly were not the first couple to suffer a relational meltdown in the middle of Napoleon's department, and I certainly think that we could not have been the last. My husband and I now refer to those few dark days as the Paris phase of our lifelong journey together. <laughs> You will be glad to know, though, that we learned our lessons in Paris, and we went on, and we had a much better time in Rome. Both the highs and the lows of that time in Europe together gave my husband and I glimpses into each other that up to that point had been completely hidden. There are certain things that are lurking just beneath the surface of each of us that can only be drawn out through the circumstances of a shared journey. So after reading this week's chapter, of scripture, I think we can all safely agree that the Israelites have now entered the Paris phase of their journey together. So let's get started by remembering how it ended last week, because if you remember, week 10 indicated, I mean chapter 10 from last week indicated that things began actually with very great promise. The last verses of chapter 10 read like this. They set out from the mountain of the Lord on a three-day journey with the Ark of the Lord's Covenant traveling ahead of them for those three days to seek a resting place for them. Meanwhile, the cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. Whenever the Ark set out, Moses would say, Arise, Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and those who hate you flee from your presence. And when it came to rest, he would say, Return, Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. After such an idyllic start to their journey, the first verse of chapter 11 seems to hit us out of nowhere, which I think was probably the exact point that the author was intending to make. 11.1. Now the people began complaining openly before the Lord about hardship. When the Lord heard, his anger burned and fire from the Lord blazed among them and consumed the outskirts of the camp. So this first episode in chapter 11 is going to begin a series of events over the next several chapters of Numbers in which we're going to see each and every group among the Israelites rebel against the Lord in significant ways. 
So this week, we're going to see them rebel against the provision of the Lord and against the plan of the Lord. So in both instances, we're going to see that the sin is described and then the judgment is given. So let's get started by looking at the sin and the judgment in this first episode. So first, what was the sin? It seems to be the fact that they were complaining. But I don't think necessarily it's the case that every complaint is a sin against the Lord. And I think we're going to see evidence of that just a little bit later in today's chapter. So I want us to pause and look a little bit more closely at this. Because obviously there was something about the Israelites' complaints here that was sinful. And we know that because of the manner in which the Lord responded. So when we look closely at the text, it's going to provide us with a couple of clues as to why the Lord responded in the way that he did. And the first clue has to do with how they did it. So that word complain, we also see translated in other Bible translations as grumbled and murmured and whined. So that certainly gives a little bit of color to this scene that is missing when we only see the word complain. So basically, they pack up to leave Mount Sinai after uh, a thorough preparation. They know that the Lord is leading them to a place of blessing and abundance. And within a very short time of starting their journey, they are suffering a complete major meltdown. And something about this did not sit right with the Lord. Understanding what it was that the Lord had delivered them from and looking forward to the place that he was leading them to should have produced within them a tolerance for the temporary discomforts of the journey. So the second clue we get regarding why these complaints angered the Lord has to do with why they did it. What exactly was it that prompted the Israelites' complaints? The text gives a really vague word there. It says hardship. Elsewhere, we see it rendered as trouble or as misfortune. But if we look at the text, we don't really see any evidence of anything of that sort occurring, so we're just left to guess. What hardship, what trouble, what misfortune are the Israelites talking about? And it may very well have been just the general circumstances of the journey, the travel itself. I mean, they were walking through a dry and hot and arid part of the desert. They had lots of stuff, and they had children in tow. It could have been the unknown itinerary. It's not like they were given a schedule every morning like you are on a cruise ship. They didn't know how long they were going to journey each day, when they would camp at night, how long they were going to get to camp until they had to pack everything up again and get going. None of those things were known. And as a person who thrives on the predictability of a good routine, who now is old enough to travel with her own fan and her own pillow, I can certainly sympathize with their woes, but I think that the key point for us to take home here is the fact that the Lord obviously did not. And Psalm 78 gives us some insight into why, in a direct reference to this very event, Psalm 78 reads, Therefore the Lord heard and became furious, and then fire broke out against Jacob, and anger flared up against Israel. Because they did not believe God or rely on his salvation. 
So here in this psalm, the God who searches the heart and who tests the mind reveals to us what was underlying, what was the cause of the Israelites' complaints. And it was not fundamentally tied to the long days or their tired feet. The complaints were an outward sign of an inward condition. They did not believe the Lord, and they did not trust him. All the while, the ark of the Lord's covenant was traveling ahead of them, and the cloud of the Lord was over them. In the face of the physical manifestation of the presence and the guidance of the Lord, the Israelites still did not believe, and they still did not trust. This was their sin. They forgot what was right, that they were being led by a good God to a good place. Christy picked up on this theme in last week's teaching as well, and we see this propensity of the Israelites to forget what is right all throughout the Old Testament. I have a few verses for you to consider up on the screen behind me, but I can assure you that those are not the only ones. And this is significant because this propensity to forget is not just a problem of the Israelites, it's a problem that we who follow Christ today also struggle against. Whenever our contentment in Christ gives way to complaints about our circumstances, it is a sure sign that we too have forgotten what is right that we are being led by a good God to a good place and understanding what it is that he has delivered us from and looking forward to the place that he is leading us to should produce within us a tolerance for the temporary discomforts of the journey. So these complaints, which Psalm 78 revealed to be a symptom of their disbelief, is what gave way to God's response. 11.1 tells us that a fire from the Lord blazed among them and consumed the outskirts of camps. So fire is seen all throughout scripture as a sign of divine activity, either in blessing or in judgment. Now, we don't know from the words and the information that's given to us what all exactly this fire consumed. We don't know if it was some of the tents around the perimeter of the camp that were actually consumed or if it was held back to just the wilderness slightly beyond. But what we do know is that the Israelites would have done well to have recognized this fire for what it was. A warning that there was indeed a God living among them who saw, who heard, and who would judge the thoughts and the intentions of their hearts. You know, I can look back on my own life and recognize similar warnings that the Lord has offered me. And although I wasn't mature enough at the time to recognize it, I can now see that these fires around the perimeter of camp that he set um, metaphorically speaking, of course, I, I can see that they were a sign of his very great mercy and his very great love for me. They were chances for me to pause and to reconsider. If I really wanted to keep wandering in the direction I was going, which was away from the Lord, or if I wanted to stop and turn 
and to return to him once more. Now, I wish I could say that on every single occasion I had heeded the Lord's warnings. But I have gone the way that the Israelites are about to go on more than one occasion, and I still live with the consequences of those decisions even today. So as someone who knows, I can assure you that it is always going to cost you more than you are willing to lose. So you heed the warnings of the Lord. You go to recognize these fires on the outskirts of camp so that you can turn and to return for him because they are indeed a sign of his very great love and his very great mercy. Verse 2, then when the people cried out to Moses and he prayed to the Lord, the fire died down. So that place was named Taborah because the Lord's fire had blazed among them. So we see in verse 2 a continuation of a pattern that's already been very well established in the story of the Israelites since their redemption from Egypt. And that is that Moses serves as the mediator. The people go to Moses and Moses goes to God on behalf of the people and God heeds the intercession of the mediator. This is important. Already this far back in the story of his people, God is conditioning us to rely on the mediator that he has put into place. So next week, we're going to get an opportunity to fully consider that a little bit further. So for now, I just want you kind of to bookmark that as something important. Moving into verse 4. The riffraff among them had a strong craving that is translated as desire or lust elsewhere for other food. The Israelites wept again and said, who will feed us meat? We remember the free fish we ate in Egypt along with the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks, onions and garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing to look at but this manna. So we had you look up that term riffraff in your study guide. So they were most likely the people, the non-Israelites who had fled with the people of God at the Exodus from Egypt. And here what we see is that instead of the Israelites, who were God's chosen people, who were a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, instead of the Israelites influencing them, they were influencing the Israelites. And their complaints were contagion that spread to the people of God. Don't we really live in an ideal time to understand the nature of a contagion? During the pandemic, I was introduced for the first time to the term R-naught. It's a mathematical term used to indicate how contagious an infectious disease is. So the R-naught tells you the average number of people who are likely to catch a disease from every single person who is infected with it. So for instance, the R-naught of the Delta variant, at least at the time when I was studying for this lesson, was eight. So that means that for every one person who had it, they were likely to spread it to an average of eight other people. And then each of those eight people were going to spread it to eight more people, and so on and so forth, a disease spreads. So you can really easily see how a disease with a high R-naught can spread like wildfire throughout a population. 
So in just a few verses, we're going to see how the NIV translates it, that every family among the Israelites is going to be just weeping over this desire for meat. The R-naught of complaint was so high that within just a matter of days, the entire community was infected. This tells us that without the proper protections in place, if we are around a complaint, chances are we are going to catch it and we are going to spread it to many others. It makes me think that it might be a good idea for us to start wearing muzzles underneath our masks to protect ourselves and each other from the spread of the infection of complaint. So last time, the Israelites' complaints were around this vague notion of hardship. But here we see that they have honed in on a very specific complaint. This time they're complaining about the food. And it's not the fact that they didn't have any, it's not the fact that they didn't have enough, but that they had grown bored with what it was that they did have. And so in verses 7 through 9, the writer felt it really necessary to pause and remind us of what it was that the Israelites did have. The manna. Manna was the supernatural provision for the Israelites. In Exodus 16, God had told Moses that he was going to rain down bread from heaven to feed his people. But they had grown weary with the Lord's provision. What they once so clearly recognized to be miraculous, they had begun over time to neglect as the mundane. What they wanted instead was the things that they remembered having in Egypt, the onions and the leeks and the melons and the fish and the garlic. What they seemed to have forgotten about Egypt, though, was the slavery that had accompanied that varied menu, the taskmasters, the backbreaking work, the bricks and the mortar, the lack of straw, the state-sponsored genocide of the male Hebrew babies. What they forgot about Egypt was the weight of their slavery there was so crushing that they had cried out to the Lord to deliver them from it, and that the Lord indeed had, that he had delivered them from it. So earlier, we discussed this human propensity to forget which is right, but what here, we see here is that we also have this tendency to remember what is wrong. The book of Deuteronomy was the last of the book that, books that Moses wrote, and we can see it as kind of his farewell letter in many regards to the Israelites. Soon after he wrote it, he was going to die, and the Israelites were going to cross over the Jordan to finally live in the place of God's promise without him. So the book of Deuteronomy was Moses' last chance to tell the Israelites everything that he wanted them to remember. And what he tells them constantly is this. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. I mean, doesn't something about that seem a little counterintuitive? I mean, 
wouldn't you think that the leader of the Israelites, if he just had one more thing to say to them, would instead of pointing them back to what they were, would remind them of who they now currently are, the holy and the redeemed and the freed people of God. No, because Moses knew so well these people's inclination to wrongly remember the place from which God had saved them, to romanticize their past and to downplay the years of their slavery. So when given the opportunity to leave them with one last message, Moses repeatedly cautions them, do not you dare look back longingly at the life you left behind in Egypt. Remember that you were a slave there. Verse 10. Moses heard the people, family after family, weeping at the entrance of their tents. The Lord was very angry. Moses was also provoked. So Moses asked the Lord, why have you brought such trouble on your servant? Why are you angry with me? And why do you burden me with all these people? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give birth to them so that you should tell me? Carry them at your breast as a nursing mother carries a baby to the land that you swore to give their ancestors. Where can I get meat to give all these people? For they are weeping to me. Give us meat to eat. I can't carry all these people by myself. They are too much for me. If you are going to treat me like this, please kill me right now if I have found favor with you. And don't let me see my misery anymore. So I decided that if I ever write a Bible study for young mothers, this verse is definitely making the cut. Right? I certainly could have used that prayer on more than a few occasions when I had a newborn here, a two-year-old here, and a four-year-old here. Right? Lord... I cannot carry all of these people. <laughs> Please kill me. <laughs> so we see that Moses vents his frustration in this long and angry prayer. And by the time that I finished reading this, I was kind of dreading how the Lord was going to respond, right? Like when one of my boys accidentally walks into the room when I'm really laying into one of his brothers, they have the sense usually to just quietly back out of the room, and then avoid me for the next few hours. Like, mom's in a bad place, right? Lay low. That's what I was telling Moses here. I was like, lay low, Moses. But Moses did not lay low. And after seeing how God had just responded to the Israelites, I was kind of dreading how he would respond to Moses. But I was quite surprised. Verse 16, the Lord answered, Moses, bring me 70 men from Israel, known to you as elders and officers of the people. Take them to the tent of meeting and have them stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there. I will take some of the spirit who is on you and put the spirit on them. They will help you bear the burden of the people so that you do not have to bear it by yourself. So the Lord meets Moses' complaint with sympathy and with compassion. And this really had me thinking. I mean, I found it really interesting to consider the reasons why God would respond so differently to Moses' complaint than he did 
the Israelites. I mean, while there are certainly portions of Moses' complaint that seem valid, like it, it probably was a very heavy burden to have to lead all of those people that long way. I also think that there were a few instances in which Moses slightly overstated his case and overstepped some bounds. So why did the Lord not come down hard on Moses as he did the Israelites? I think some of it must have to do with the fact that we see Moses just be so honest with the Lord. I mean, he is frustrated with the Israelites, so he tells God about it. He doesn't know how to provide the meat for them, so he tells God about it. He feels overwhelmed about the prospect of having to lead them any further, and so he tells God about it. When we compare that to the way in which the Israelites complained, we see in their complaints this kind of passive, aggressive sort of quality. Instead of just coming directly to the Lord and and asking for what they wanted or what they think that they needed, they sulk and they whine and they complain. So I ask you, in in a human relationship, which of those two is gonna go better? Right? The Israelites' way or Moses' way? It's the same with our relationship with the Lord. God is well acquainted with the frailties of humankind, and he responds to our limits with compassion. Instead of directing us to suck it up when we're met with a problem, he says things like, come to me. Right? He invites us to cast our burdens and our anxieties on him, to always make our requests known to him. So Moses does hear exactly what it is that the Lord invites us to do, so it really shouldn't come as a surprise when the Lord responds to Moses by meeting his request by the way of the 70 elders. So that is how God responded to Moses. And this is how he continues to respond to the Israelites. Verse 18 Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in readiness for tomorrow, and you will eat meat because you wept in the Lord's hearing. Who will feed us meat? We were better off in Egypt. The Lord will give you meat, and you will eat it. You will eat not for one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes nauseating to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and you wept before him. Why did we ever leave Egypt? So we don't even have to guess what it was about the Israelites' complaints here that so deeply offended the Lord because he tells us, he says, you have rejected the Lord who is among you. So they had rejected the provision of the Lord through their despise of the manna. And here we see them rejecting the plan of the Lord to lead them to the place of promise by their yearning to return once again to the land of Egypt. Verse 21, but Moses replied, I'm in the middle of a people with 600,000 foot soldiers, yet you say I will give them meat and they will eat for a month. If flocks and herds were slaughtered for them, would they have enough? Or if all the fish in the sea were caught for them, would they have enough? The Lord answered Moses, is the Lord's arm weak? 
Now you will see whether or not what I have promised will happen to you. So clearly, Moses is still having a moment. But I want you to hang in there and see what happens next because this is what I want us to pay attention to. We are going to see that even in this place of doubt, Moses is going to act in obedience. And isn't that just what we sometimes have to do? I mean, we are all going to come across seasons of doubt and frustrations and questions and even disbelief as we try to messily follow after the Lord. But even from those places, we can still choose to walk in obedience. That's exactly what we're going to see Moses do next. And I tell you that I think the Lord loves to work in those circumstances because look, at what he does. In verse 24, Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. He brought 70 men from the elders of the people and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord descended in the cloud and spoke to him. He took some of the spirit who was on Moses and placed the spirit on the 70 elders. As the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they never did it again. So there are many other verses in scripture that show prophecy as a mark of God's spirit. So we can't tell by the information given us exactly how that was made manifest in the elders, what it looked like. But what we can know is that they acted in a way that accredited them as prophets in the eyes of the Israelites, that demonstrated that the spirit of God was upon them as it was also upon Moses. Verse 26, two men had remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad. The spirit rested on them. They were among those listed but had not gone out to the tent, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and reported to Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, assistant to Moses since his youth, responded, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses asked him, are you jealous on my account? If only all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would place his spirit on them. Then Moses returned to the camp along with the elders of Israel. So the young Joshua sees the unauthorized actions of Eldad and Medad as an affront to Moses' authority, but Moses clearly does not. And Moses provides us with a very beautiful picture of a truly mature leader here, right? Even given the situation of this episode, right after where Moses had felt so personally and so painfully inadequate to lead God's people, even there, he, he still welcomes people using the gifts that God had given them. We're going to get the opportunity in the next few weeks of study to see really negative examples of this over the next few chapters of Numbers when people are going to step out and jockey and reach for positions and callings and giftings that aren't necessarily theirs to take. But here, Moses recognizes that the Lord has done this and he welcomes them to continue acting in that gifting. Verse 31. A wind sent by the Lord came up and blew quell in from the sea. It dropped them all around the camp. They were flying three feet off the ground for about a day's journey in every direction. The people were up all that day and night and all the next day gathering the quell. 
the one who took the least gathered 60 bushels, and they spread them all around the camp. So the CEV describes the amount of quell as being piled up about three feet high for miles in every direction. So through this, God unmistakably answers Moses' doubt, and he also confronts the Israelites' underhanded accusations from earlier in this chapter when they wept and they cried, oh, who will feed us meat? Right? Through bringing the quell, God proved that he can. God is perfect in power. Anything that we are asking him to do, he can do it. So if he can and he's not, then we're supposed to trust him with what he is not doing. And yet, even despite this ridiculous amount of abundance that the Lord brought, verse 32 just paints this nauseating picture of the extent of the Israelites' lust for this meat. It says that they feverishly worked day and night, gathering as much as they can, hoarding it away. The, the one who gathered the least gathered the equivalent of 10 donkey loads, which I know is how much toilet paper some of you still have left in your cabinets. And this greed stands in opposition to everything that the Lord had been teaching them through the manna. Do you remember what God had instructed? He had said that each day they are to go out and they are to collect only enough for that day. The Israelites were to provide, to trust God daily for his provision for them. Verse 33, while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the Lord's anger burned against the people and the Lord struck them with a very severe plague. So they named that place Kibroth Hatava because there they buried the people who had craved the meat. You saw in your study guide that the name of that place translates into graves of gluttony or graves of craving. The thing that the Israelites so ravenously desired was the very thing that killed them. All of those who ate of the meat died of a plague. One of the things that I found really interesting to consider as I was reading through this is that there must have been a million different points along the way for any single individual Israelite to stop and consider if they wanted to continue wandering away from the Lord or if they instead chose to turn and return to him. And I think that the encouraging thing is that so many of them must have, right? We, we saw that every family was weeping over this desire for meat, and then those who ate of the meat died in the plague. But as we continue on over the next several chapters, we're still going to see a people going forth there's always opportunities in the midst of our missteps to reconsider, do I want to keep wandering away from the Lord or do I want to turn and finally return to him? 
It's so interesting that in this story, God's judgment comes in the very form of him giving them the very thing that they were begging him for. I mean, I think there's a lesson that we can take there. We should never attempt to bend God's will to our own. When we want that, which he does not want for us, our petition should not be that he would just give us what we want anyway, but we should ask the Lord to change our desires so that we want what he gives. The dangers of our desires going astray is so severe that through this event in the book of Numbers, God is absolutely just pleading with us to pay attention. He warns us of being captivated by our cravings through this account of the Israelites. And then in the New Testament, we're even going to see that he's going to remind us of this warning. In the book of 1 Corinthians, this is what Paul writes in reference to this very event in the book of Numbers. He says, now these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire, crave, lust after evil things as they did. That verse gives us a few things to think about. Right? Paul said that we should not crave evil things as they did. So that made me consider, now, was the meat that the people craved inherently evil? I don't think so. I think it was their fixation upon it that was. Their willful choice to set their minds and to fix their hearts upon it. I think that was where they went wrong. It's not the fact that they merely wanted it. And you and I are going to face similar temptations every day, not just to want, but to crave, to lust after, to willfully set our minds and to fix our hearts upon the things of this world. But Romans 8, 5 says that those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So that means that we get to choose. We get to choose what we set our hearts and fix our minds upon. And this account in the book of Numbers stands as a warning to us to set your heart on the right thing. Set your heart on the right thing. Scripture tells us that through Jesus Christ, the true bread from heaven, God has provided us with everything that we need. So our longing and our cravings and our desires should be on more of him. And where it's not, it's a warning to us, it's a fire around the perimeter of camp that somewhere along the way, we have allowed what, what we once saw so clearly to be miraculous, we have come to see as mundane that we have forgotten what is right, that we are now remembering what is wrong, and that we too are at risk for rejecting the plan and the provision of Jesus Christ in our lives. So this journey has begun to reveal things in the Israelites that God needed 
to reveal in them. And I think that as we read and as we study it, the Spirit of God can use their story to do the same thing in us, to reveal things within us that he needs to reveal in us because we also are a people on a journey not at all dissimilar from theirs. So as ready as we all may be to hop on a plane and get the heck out of Paris, we still have several weeks here. So we can use this time to pause and ask, Lord, are there places where I'm wandering away from you? Is there a place where I can now turn and return to you? And be assured that he always leaves that option open. Let's go to him in prayer.